Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Hey, we are continuing our series, uh, Confronting Genesis, which, uh, as I've mentioned before, is a mashup of the, uh, we're looking at the first 12 chapters of Genesis and uh, kind of using, borrowing, in some places, completely ripping off themes from uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, which I I just couldn't recommend more highly. Uh, If I haven't made that clear already, it's a fantastic book and uh, well worth your time, no matter who you are, honestly. If you've been a Christian a long time, if you're not a Christian, anywhere in between, uh, it's a super helpful book. So uh, one thing I wanted to say about last week, I, I mentioned to you all that I was a bit stressed out about last week's message. Uh, we were doing Christianity and science, and uh, I was stressed out for a couple reasons. One, I am not a scientist at all. Uh, two, it's such a gigantic topic that it felt like there were a million ways to go, and, it, and honestly, it wasn't until the 11th hour that I even chose kind of a framework for it all. Um, and in the process of being so stressed out, I did two things. One, I preached for way too long last week, and you're all, you'll all remember that. Uh, And two, um, I never actually read the passage from the Bible. Anybody else notice that? About, I I get off stage and there's a text from my wife that says, you haven't read the passage yet. And so that's how stressed out I was. I didn't read the Bible last week in my sermon. And not everybody, you know, some of you are new, uh, but uh, we are Bible people. So not reading the Bible uh, is not the norm. So I apologize for that. Um, I've got in, in bold print, read the passage in my notes here. So hopefully that won't happen again. Okay, um, tonight we are talking about Christianity and human dignity, okay? Uh, human dignity, human rights are a massive issue in our world today. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a constant topic of conversation in the media and in political spheres, uh, and it is a really big deal. And so what I want to do tonight is give us um, a, basically a Christian foundation for human dignity and human rights. And in the process, I do want to draw some distinctions between uh, kind of how Christians think about human rights and how uh, the secular world or a secularist worldview thinks about human rights and human dignity. So um, this week, in preparation for this message, I was doing some research on uh, kind of of statistics about what's going on in the world. And there were a couple, there were a lot that I saw, but um, several that that kind of jumped out. And and I want to read a few of these for you. Um, That worldwide, every year, about 9 million people die from starvation or uh, issues related to malnourishment and starvation, nine million a year. In America alone, almost 20,000 people are murdered every year, and the majority of those are minority peoples. Um, That in America alone, 50,000 people are trafficked into our country, just into America, 50,000 people, mostly Women, vast majority, 71% young women trafficked into our country. 
that the, uh, in every year, and the numbers are harder to come by for various reasons on this, but um, somewhere between 800,000 and a million babies are aborted every single year in America. And these, these numbers are staggering, and there's many, many more, and probably none of them surprise you in general. In fact, if anything, the 20,000 murders a year number seemed lower to me than I expected. But one question kind of kept ringing in my head as I read these statistics, and that question was, why do we care? Why do we care? Now, uh, to be Sure, some of those numbers care, you care more about some of them than others, right? And it often breaks down political lines. Some of you um, are, are very actively working against uh, human trafficking in our world today, and that's, that really matters to you. And so that number, that 50,000 uh, people are trafficked into our country every year, bothers you at a very deep level. Some of you um, are, are really bothered by the fact that between 800,000 and a million babies are aborted every year. Some of you uh, have worked very hard against such a thing, and then there's probably some of you who don't care as much about that number and maybe are uh, to some degree glad that the women that those babies represent had the opportunity to make that decision in our country. For some of you, 9 million people starving around the world really matters. For some of you, 20,000 murders, especially uh, the fact that the majority of those are minority populations, that that really matters to you a lot. For others of you, you kind of chalk that up to choices people make and decisions that cultures make. And so we, we kind of resonate with these things differently depending on often our political persuasion. But these are deep realities of our world, and very few of us would actually hear these statistics or statistics like them and go, oh, that's not a big deal. Who cares? That just about all of us at some level hear statistics like this and, and, and read the news and hear the news and go, gosh, there is something deeply, deeply wrong with this. Like 50,000 people should not be trafficked into our country. That that's not just, it doesn't just make me sad, that it makes me outraged. And it's, a, it's in fact a moral problem. It's a moral outrage. It's evil that nine million people die of starvation every year. It's evil that 800,000 or more babies are aborted every year, and we would put our foot down and say, no, this is wrong. But the question is why? Why is that wrong? Now, Christians have a very clear answer to that question, and so I, I am posing this question to all of us. Like, we, we say it's wrong, but if you are here today and you don't have religious convictions, you don't have Christian convictions and Christian faith, I would ask you to consider, as we talk through the rest of this passage, why does that bother you? Because there is a story, a naturalistic story, materialistic story, the evolutionary story, for which this shouldn't ultimately matter. In fact, the naturalistic story is built on the effects of the powerful oppressing the weak, the strong eating the weak. 
that natural selection and survival of the fittest is how we got here and in fact is kind of the primary rule of kind of the development of life. It's how we became what we are. And in fact, uh, and Rebecca McLaughlin talks about this in her book, in the animal kingdom, all of the things that we just talked about, maybe besides trafficking, uh, are, are, are happening all the time in the animal kingdom. And I've not yet seen a march against chimpanzees killing other chimpanzees. I've never seen a single person wave a sign saying lions shouldn't kill gazelles. If anything, we watch YouTube videos of them doing it all the time. My kids love them, right? The crocodile against the wildebeest or whatever it is, super interesting. And so there's something different about this. In fact, uh, you don't even have to go to crocodiles and wildebeest. We live in Seattle. Literally thousands of times a day, I see two dogs play out the natural world. In fact, just the other day, and we're surrounded by dogs everywhere in this town. No comment on that. But I'm driving down the street, and I, I'm going north on 23rd, and I hit Cherry, and I'm stopped at the stoplight, and I see the scene unfolding. On my right, there is a very small dog uh, that, is, um, uh, that is leashed to its owner, this young girl who's on her phone, kind of not paying attention to what's going on, just waiting for the light to turn. And I can see, because I'm turning right, that on the opposite corner, there is a bulldog um, that is on the leash of another woman who is very aware of what's happening because the bulldog has stopped dead in its tracks and has laser scoped onto the dog across the street because in his mind, I mean, in his, I could see it in his eyes, it said snack. Like that's what it said through its eyes and we could see kind of the naturalistic worldview playing out and literally this poor woman with the bulldog is using all of her might to get this thing to move and it will not move because it sees food. This is what by and large the naturalistic worldview ought to produce in all of us. In fact, uh, atheist by the name of Ronald Osborne wrote a book called Humanism and the Death of God. And he speaks about naturalistic attempts to root human rights and dignity. And he says this, core humanistic values of inviolable human dignity, inalienable human rights, and intrinsic human equality cannot be upheld by a scientific naturalism that will always crumble into nihilism. Rather, they must be sustained by a vision of personhood such as the one found in an historically unprecedented way in Christianity. So we answer the question, Christians answer the question, and have always answered the question of why should we care about evil or how do we even get the opportunity to name a thing evil? from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And so we are going to read that right now. At the end of the creation account, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Since this was written, this has been the foundation of our understanding of human rights and dignity. In fact, Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, says this, the idea that all human beings should be valued equally was far from normative in the ancient world. In Greek and Roman thought, free men had more inherent dignity and worth than women, slaves, or children, and disabled infants were routinely disposed of. Plato and Aristotle supported direct eugenics, the latter, Aristotle declaring, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. Into this world stepped a first century Jewish rabbi who elevated women, valued children, loved the poor, and embraced the sick. The early Christian insistence on brotherhood across racial and ethnic boundaries, even across the dichotomy of slave and free, became a spark to ignite a new moral imagination. That this idea that human beings are created in the image of God is the foundation for our Western civilization's concept of human dignity and the human rights that humans deserve. It is the foundation that we now, as Westerners, take absolutely for granted. Now, what has happened over time as modernity has grown and we have kind of become more secular in many ways as a society, we have attempted to retain the idea of human dignity and human rights while pulling out from underneath it the foundation upon which it was built. And so you have, in, in McLaughlin's book, quotes a, a bunch of different uh, philosophers and atheists saying exactly this, is that once you take out that foundation, you have a house of cards when it comes to human rights and human dignity. Because upon what foundation can you declare anything ultimately moral or immoral? So we, we're kind of, as a culture, now borrowing on generations of theological foundation, but as that theological foundation crumbles, so too will our vision for human rights that we take for granted as Westerners. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, but this field of evolutionary psychology has made kind of some claims as to why a purely atheistic, naturalistic process of evolution might have produced kind of an altruistic instinct within us that would allow us to kind of give and receive these human rights. And they break down basically as a threefold argument. I just want to cover it really quickly so that we can be aware. One, 
They argue that people who were altruistic and unselfish survived in greater number than those who were not, and so their genes were passed down, that there was something inherently valuable for life and um, kind of propagation for those people who were altruistic. If you're nice, people are nice to you, you're less likely to get a rock across the head, basically, okay? Number two that sacrificing for kin and tribe made the tribe stronger, thus preserving life and making it advantageous to protect your tribe and kin. Number three, that there was personal social benefit to acting bravely and altruistically, which motivates people. So if you want to be well-liked or well-known or to be uh, popular and well-respected and gain power in your tribe, then acting bravely and altruistically can give you social capital. Okay, so there's, there's problems with all three of these assertions, and I want to very briefly address them in reverse order. Acting bravely and altruistically in public can indeed net social benefit. We have all felt the increased guilt around Christmas time when they've got the pot and the bell and you're walking through and there's people around and you just, you kind of feel that guilt. So yeah, that's definitely a thing, but it doesn't explain our altruistic actions or instincts that are done in private, that no one will see or the guilt we feel when we neglect to do it. That we're not, we're not so kind of cutthroat that we do the mental math of, well, if I do it with people around, then I'll, they'll think I'm great and I'll gain some kind of cachet with them, that we do things even in private. We do things that we would never get benefit for. Number two, um, indeed, sacrificing for tribe and kin can make survival more likely, but... Why do we uphold the human dignity and rights of our enemies or those who are not part of our tribe? Like the core argument here is that if we work altruistically and work together, sacrifice for the other, that we as a tribe could survive better together or as a family. But that doesn't explain the human rights we give to those who want to kill us that are our enemies, or that live all the way across the planet, that we believe are just as worthy of dignity and value and honor as we are. Lastly, ultimately, naturalism can only tell us why we would act altruistically, but not why we should. And this is the core problem. This is, the, this is where it gets actually very dangerous because this view of the world is ultimately utilitarian. It says that we act more moral because it is to our advantage. But what about when it isn't to our advantage? It is no longer moral to do good when we receive no benefit or even at great risk to ourselves. Is bravery still bravery if it only ultimately, when it is only ultimately self-gratifying and utilitarian? So the problem with this naturalistic worldview is that it, at the end of the day, when morality becomes utilitarian, there will come a point at which being good isn't actually helpful to you. And then what? Well, and then you have, you've lost any kind of moral authority or ground to say something is wrong if it is, to, you know, is going to cause sacrifice or to do you harm. So naturalism can describe why we would, but not why we should. 
especially in moments where, where doing the right thing causes great danger. Now, here's the reality. Most people don't think like this. Most of the people in this room, most of the people in our workplaces, in our school, in our neighborhoods, most people aren't thinking this thing through like this. Most of my neighbors have signs in their yard that say, Black Lives Matter, science is real, and on and on and on, all the, the sign we see all over the place, to which I say, amen, but why? Yes, absolutely Black Lives Matter. Absolutely, science is real. Absolutely, we should fight discrimination. Absolutely, these things are true, but why? And so what, what is more common is not that somebody has thought through this kind of specific naturalistic world, but that we have this kind of vague idea of human rights that we want to argue for or fight for, but if we were asked just a few questions, we would default to some vague idea about inherent human dignity. Which uh, anyone who reads history knows that there is no such thing as inherent human dignity. Anyone who, who, who studies cross-culturally understands that there's no such thing as inherent human dignity that's shared across cultures. And in fact, in McLaughlin's book, she does a great job and, and gives um, some very specific examples of how this is not true, especially uh, in certain Middle Eastern cultures uh, that are probably too graphic for me to feel comfortable reading here, but I would encourage you to read it yourself. I mean, uh, it, it's, it, it doesn't take much to think about uh, Nazism, and I know that they're an easy target, but they are the kind of natural end of this way of thinking when morality becomes utilitarian, and all of a sudden it is to your advantage to exterminate an entire people group. Morality goes out the window. Morality based on utilitarianism will always end in a form of nihilism that is oppressive. But Christianity says something different. Christianity says that we were made in the image of God, each and every one of us. And because of that, all human beings are equally worthy of dignity and respect and human rights. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk very briefly through three implications of this idea and end with a challenge for us. So here are my three questions. One, what does this idea mean for you? What does this mean for them? And what does this mean for God? Number one, what does this mean for you? Here's what, here's what God thinks about you. God says that he made you in his image, that he made you on purpose, and that he made you for a purpose, that he made you out of love, and he made you in love, that he gave you dignity, and he gave you honor, and he gave you rights that are, and this is important, it's going to sound like one of those kind of philosopher, kind of dumb dichotomies, but there's this really important piece to this, that Christians believe that our human dignity is extrinsic, not intrinsic. I know, you, you, you're waiting to hear what I thought about this issue. Here's what I think about this. This is really good news. 
that our human value and human dignity is extrinsic, not intrinsic. Here, here's what that means. Here's what that means. If, if our dignity was intrinsic, it would mean that it comes from something within us. That there is something uniquely about us. That there's something about our makeup. There's something about our, our atoms and molecules and how we're put together. There's something about us that gives us dignity. And Christianity teaches that our dignity is in fact extrinsic, which means that it comes from outside of us. That, that we have human value and dignity because God gave it to us. And here's why that's good news. Now, there, there's, there's some of us in the room who would, in a kind of a, in a snap judgment, go, no, 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 I like the idea that it's intrinsic because then it's about me. And I, it's like that, you know, you've, you're the goddess within you, or God, depending on who you are. Um, the, 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 this, this like e eternal light or divine spark that's within you that you are intrinsically good. And I just think that if we think about that for just a minute, for just a little bit of time, and we think back on our lives, we think back even on today and the thoughts that we've thought and the things that we've done and the people we've known and what we have said to them and what we have done to them and what we have done with them, that if we just thought about that for a minute, we would be hopeless, despairing, lost because we know ourselves. And here's what this means. If, if our inherent dignity is intrinsic, it means it depends on us. That it's on us. That, that there's something inside us. That there's something that we have to conjure up and be in order to actually have the dignity that is made available to us. But if our dignity is extrinsic, if it's something that has been given to us, it doesn't depend on us, it depends on the one who gave it to us. And man, I, the more I think about that, the longer I am a Christian, the more times that I, like the longer that I have to be a father, and the more times that I lose my everything with my kids because they're the worst, the more thankful I am that my basic human dignity is extrinsic, meaning it's given to me, not earned by me. Because God doesn't change, God doesn't fail. God doesn't remove and apply based on my behavior, but on his character. And it says at the very beginning, the first thing that is ever said about me is that I am made in the image of God. And that doesn't change. That that is the truest thing about me. Um, I, I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, but a uh, writer in the New York Times by the name of Ross Douthat um, wrote an article about despair. And it was because the Congressional Joint Economic Committee uh, put out this study about deaths of despair in our country, and it's alarming. This just little section from that study says, mortality from deaths of despair far surpasses anything seen in America since the dawn of the 20th century. This is today. The, more, the recent increase has primarily been driven by an unprecedented epidemic of drug overdoses, 
but even excluding those deaths, the combined mortality rate from suicides and alcohol-related deaths is higher than at any point in more than 100 years. Suicides have not been so common since 1938, and one has to go back to the 1910s to find mortality from alcohol-related deaths as high as today's. Today, while, while America experiences one of its greatest eras of prosperity, we have more deaths of despair than we have had since the beginning of the 19th century. I think that a big part of this is the loss of identity and selfhood as a result of an increasingly secular society. If naturalism is true, you are nothing. You mean nothing. Your life means nothing. Your feelings mean nothing. Your work means nothing. Your family means nothing. It's all pointless. Naturalism always ends in nihilism. Nothing matters. But this is not the Christian story. This is not what we believe. In fact, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. A more specific telling of how God made man. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. What is so remarkable about that sentence, not, not only just its place in, in historical literature, not, not just the fact that the Christian telling of the formation of humanity is so unique from every other faith and philosophy throughout all of time. And that is not just a preacher telling you that. A any historian worth its salt will tell you the same thing. That that line is so incredibly unique that the Christian vision for relationship between God and humanity is that God bent down into the dust, formed our bodies, and then breathed life into our nostrils. Can you picture... That moment and the intimacy involved in it, that the way in which God chose to create humanity after, after deciding in his eternal wisdom to make us in his own image, to create us in a unique way from all the other goodness of creation, God decided I'm going to make mankind in a way that reflects my glory and my character. It's going to in some sense look like me and so I am from the very beginning going to form him with an intimacy that makes most of us uncomfortable. There are very few people in the world I am willing to be mouth to nostril with. And in fact, none of them are in the room right now. In case you were wondering, no chance. No mouth to nostril with you. That, that is such an intimate moment. 
There, there are, for most of us, I, I, would, I would hope for most of us, has a very short list of people. If you have a long list, come talk. Let's, let's, let's talk. A very short list of people that we would ever be that intimate with to have that kind of proximity of space. And yet God, who could have created in any way, in fact, had already created all of the known universe by a word, decided, ah, now, now to humanity. Now, the way to read this section is to say, God is describing his creation with, of humanity in terms of his relationship to humanity, that that is the point, that God formed you on purpose, intimately, and that you will not be right again in the world until you regain that proximity, that relationship, that intimacy with God. So what does this idea of the Imago Dei mean for me? It means that I matter. It means that I have purpose. It means that I have meaning. It means that I am known. It means that I am loved. And when we lose that, and life gets reduced down to molecules and atoms and accidents, there, there's, a, there's a ripple effect of that into our souls. And so for, forever, since these words were written, this has been the foundation of how we as Westerners in particular, but Christians more specifically, understand ourselves and who we are and why we matter. So what, what does this mean for them? Who is them? Well, you tell me. Everyone has a them. Everyone does. It may be a specific name of a person, or it may be a group of people. It may be the kinds of people who act like this, or the kinds of people who believe like that. It might be the kinds of people who vote like this, or the kinds of people who spend money on that. But every single one of us has a them. A person for which the grace of God has run out. I remember talking to an old college friend on Facebook, and this is almost never useful, but uh, made for one good illustration. I was talking to a college friend. This was in the aftermath of the uh, last major election, and we were talking about his grandmother who had voted for the president, and he very much didn't. And, uh, and, and I, I was talking to him about the fact that it had been helpful to me to talk to people in my life who had voted for the president and, and try to understand. And his statement to me was, I'll never understand, and frankly, I don't want to. His grandmother is them. She, she's no longer an, a, a human uh, being, an, a, a, an, an agent, a, a person who actually has thoughts and feelings and is kind of trying to figure out the world, that she had become them, the enemy, the other. Everybody has one. I'm not going to 
make us name names or identify them, and, and maybe it's not even that conscious or explicit to you, but there's just this little bit of disgust that wells up when, when you think about that person or that kind of person. Somebody you just cannot even understand where they're coming from and frankly don't want to. This is where this idea of the Imago Dei is so powerful for us. And passages like Galatians 3.28 were so kind of culture turning upside down. It's when Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was absolutely radical in Paul's day, where, as I read from Rebecca McLaughlin before, that uh, men, free men, were worthy of full dignity and honor, and the hierarchy kind of went down from there. Women and boys and slaves and on and on and on. That they were, like, like structurally less valuable in society. And this statement, this one statement, turns all of that on its head. And as humans, we, we are kind of by nature hierarchical beings. We want power. We want control. We want to know who is above who. I, for instance, am, am very competitive. I am an extremely competitive person. I want to win at everything I do. More than that, I want you to lose. And more than that, I want you to know you lost to me. Okay, I don't want you to acknowledge that. Okay, it's one of the worst things about being in ministry. There's no, I can't compete. Who do I compete with, right? Like, it's not okay to be like, we're killing that church down the street, right? I, I, I might think that, but I can't say that out loud. I once said that to somebody, and they said, well, you can compete with Satan. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Don't say that ever again. It's ridiculous. In Christ... In the vision of Christianity, there is no them. There is only us. All of us. Made in the image of God. And what's more, our mission is to fight for that to be practically true in the world. Jesus himself in Luke, one of the first things Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That Jesus said his mission was not just to be kind of this, this perfect imago day, but to fight for it to be true for all people. To, to proclaim freedom, to proclaim sight, to proclaim liberty for the oppressed. That God will not rest until things are put back to rights, and this is our mission too. When we see people around us being treated not as image bearers of God, as something less than that, that it is part of our mission, the continuing mission of Christ, to fight so that everyone is treated with equal dignity and respect as image bearers of God. 
It's why Christians have always been at the forefront for the battle for human rights. Because no one in it more fully or more convincingly than we do. And that must continue today. So what does this idea of Imago Dei mean for them? It means that there is no them. That there is only us and that we have to fight for us. Lastly, what does this mean for God? The argument about God and human rights works in both directions. Not only is a, a beginning with a foundation of God the best and surest path to be able to hold up human rights, as, as we've discussed, that it was historically the foundation for what we as Westerners think of as human rights, that this, this idea of God and his creative work in the world is the best argument for human rights, but it works the other way too. Because there are some of us here who are not Christians, but you have this conviction about human dignity and rights. And you know it to be true. You feel the injustice. You feel the oppression of weaker people around you, and you know that it's wrong. And, and what does it mean that our best instincts the things about ourselves that we all acknowledge are the best pieces of us, at least hint at something better and greater behind it all. That all of us would say, yes, the, 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 that thing in us, that instinct to fight for the, the little guy, to fight for the poor, to fight for the oppressed, that that is one of the best things about us. And yet, one of the best things about us cannot be explained by purely scientific and naturalistic causes. It requires us, even if we do so vaguely, to say that there's something more, there's something bigger, there's something other that holds all this together, that gives us the foundation to make moral statements at all. What does it say about God? That his plan all along was to enter into his creation in the form of a humble, backwater nobody and to save it from within. That the story of the gospel is that God created us to be image bearers of God. It's where we, as our church, get our name. That's icons. It's the same, same word, same idea, that we are icons, that we were made to be icons, that sin has separated us, that has marred this image in us so that we don't fully live out who we are. And then in order to redeem us back to, to restore us back to the icons we were made to be, Jesus became one of us. He became an icon to restore his icons back to being icons. That's the story of the gospel. We were created with this incredible opportunity and responsibility to most fully reflect the image of God in all of creation. We are icons made to reflect his glory and grace. Where we fail, we repent. Where we succeed, we give him glory. This is the life we were made for and the only life that will fully satisfy and bring us peace 
and joy and love and all the things that the deepest parts of us know we need and want. This is the hope. This is who we are. All right. We've got a few questions here um, that we'll look at really quickly. We do this every week. If you're new, we do Q&A every week. I really enjoy it. I hope you do too because we're going to keep doing it. Um, All right, question one. Should we promote our values of human dignity in regards to violence, sex trafficking, abortion, et cetera, through how we vote? Yes, absolutely. Here's the problem. I don't think that uh, the problem that Christians have politically is that they are um, too pro-life and that you know, you, you, sometimes Christians can get the critique that we are one-issue voters, that it's abortion and abortion only. And I think that critique can be fair. Here is my, uh, my hope for us, that we would be completely pro-life, holistically pro-life, meaning anywhere we see the image of God not being born or held up, that we would fight for that, whether that be issue, an issue like abortion, of which I am absolutely pro-life, uh, or an issue like, uh, uh, you know, poverty or oppression in any way, racial discrimination, anything in, in any way that people are not being treated as image bearers of God, we should fight for that, right? So it's not that we aren't pro-life enough, or it's not that we are too pro-life, it's that we are not holistically pro-life. We are pro-image bearers of God in all of their forms and functions. Number two, vague humanism may not be founded on anything, but folks still seem to want to practice it just because. Why do you think that is? I love this question because the answer is easy. Because it's easy. That's the answer. It's way harder. See, it's as if um, you... I almost used a, something my mom used to say, but I'll, I'll just explain it rather than use the actual saying because it may not be appropriate for this setting. Mom. Um, <laughs> Christianity built a vision for human rights and human dignity that is the envy of the world, that is the best case for human rights and human dignity. And there's all kinds of statistics that suggest a correlation bordering on causation between countries that have high value for human rights and high economic prosperity, right? So we have created a powerful Western civilization, which has all kinds of struggle and hypocrisy. And I mean, let's, let's, call it what it is, you've got a Western civilization built on a Christian vision of human rights that also enslaved entire peoples. So massive hypocrisy, don't get me wrong, massive failure in Western civilization. And yet it has built a vision for human rights and human dignity that is unparalleled. And and honestly, no one even argues isn't the best and truest vision of human rights and dignity. That just the problem is that it comes with this really troublesome God who has a vision for life for you and hopes and expectations and calls things sin that we don't want to stop doing. 
And so we will take the benefits of a Judeo-Christian worldview without being committed to the God that is the foundation of it. It's a short-term strategy that will not play out in the long run, but that's why because it's good and it's right and it's consistent. I've used this phrase several times. It's consistent with the grain of the universe. It's good, inherently good, and you don't have to believe in God in order to recognize that the Western vision for human rights is good, right? People over the world are doing that very thing. Lastly, is this an argument for the existence of God or just an observation that life would be more meaningful and life would have more dignity if God exists. If naturalism is true, the fact that it leads to nihilism doesn't make it less true, just more hopeless. Oh man, that's so good and so true. Here's, here's where this breaks down a little bit for me. I, I don't like arguments for the existence of God. You, you can't argue for the existence of God in the sense that I can't prove it. Okay, it's not, a, it's not a provable concept. Neither, though, is atheism a provable concept. So if we can start with the fact that these are both leaps of faith, okay? We're believing that there is a God or we're believing that there isn't a God. Those are both leaps of faith for, for either side. So if we start from that vantage point, that both of these are worldviews based on faith, then we just need to start to ask some questions about our worldview. If one of us is making a leap of faith uh, that, that develops a worldview that leads towards nihilism and despair, nihilism just means nothing is real, nothing matters, it's all fake and foolish. Um, that if that's where your leap of faith is leading you, don't jump. That's terrible. But if is an alternative, a leap of faith for sure, but a leap of faith that leads to flourishing and hope, and joy, and all of the outcomes we talked about in week one and week two that are more consistent with the type of flourishing all of us want, I do think it, that it requires a longer look. I do think it requires us to think a little harder about that, what all that means and what all that looks like. So is it an argument for the existence of God? Yes and no, it's certainly an argument that what your heart intrinsically wants, instinctively desires, is also found in this way of being and believing, and not this one. So C.S. Lewis, and I'll paraphrase here to end, argues that if there is something that I'm longing for that I cannot find in this world, it might just suggest that I was made for another world. And so it's not an argument for the existence of God, but it is an argument that, man, if, you, if there's something that you want and intrinsically believe ought to be true, and there's a pathway to experience it, it just might be possible that that's true. And certainly a better option than the pathway you know ends towards nihilism. That's terrible. So we'll end there. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.